0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But most people,
1: for the most part, when they confront fear, they back off, especially a fear that's so radical that it makes you afraid that if you, die, if you keep going forward, you might be extinct. And that's a possibility Bank robbery. You walk out and there's a bunch of cops and they shoot you dead. Your body understands this. So once you go down, get a headache, my jaw clenching, sweaty, my hands are just can't, you know, jumping off the steering wheel. I want a a wave of fatigue goes over me, so I can almost pass on the side of the road. Pretty intense, very intense experience. What I needed to do is I needed to get angry. I needed to summon my rage by thinking of things that had humiliated me in the past, you know, from bullies from childhood all the way to my dad and you know the stabbing. And then this monster would rise up in me and. A level of peace, you know, struck me. You know, came over me that was 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 transcendental. Man, it was spiritual, practically. I was no longer afraid. In fact, I felt like I could just handle. I could. It was endorphin high or something. It was something. I just felt like I could handle anything. I had a giant. I felt a giant, like a giant, and and I would go and direct that rage with great efficiency and make it through those banks. I just marshaled my, my my intensity. Took it into those places and, and just with my words I can march them to the vault. I could just make them give me money. I can make a couple tellers do it. Once I was I was so dissatisfied with the little money that this little bank gave me that even though the cops were on the way, on the way out, I just walked in the bank next door and robbed it too. I was that <laughs> that's how fearless I was. And crazy, which is partly what that fearlessness is. But that's what it was like. You had to push through the fear.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, you know, I, I came across you by way of, of some of the writing you were doing on Medium, and I was very intrigued by your story. So speaking of your story, um, tell us a, a bit about your background, your story, and, and how that has led you to to the work that you're doing today.
1: Okay, so, um, well, I guess, why don't why don't we start with, I'll just go straight to the beginning, and I'll, and I'll Rushing through it and get you to hear because I'm doing a bunch of exciting things, but the beginning story is pretty intense, pretty amazing. Um, I'm I'm I was born to 16-year-old parents in East Los Angeles in 1961, and they were dropouts of high school. But my dad ended up going back to night school, and, and eventually, he got into college. And they were, we were being these very Protestant Mexicans in a very Catholic um, part of Los An- East Los Angeles, among. A brown sea of catholics and but we went to church all the time we went to church twice on sunday during the week a couple nights i was raised a very religious boy my father wanted to be a minister so he went like i said he went back to got his high school diploma then he started going to junior college and um and when i was seven very happy kid my little brother a year and a half younger than me um um, and, and already really wanting to love Jesus, be loving Jesus. And maybe even think about being a pastor because I would gather the kids around and tell them the good news, uh, of Jesus Christ. I did this little flannel graph storyboard with them. I was already kind of preaching and, and teaching the word. Um, my mother got sick when I was seven, she got a kidney disease. And for two and a half years, our home became this horrible place, um, where she was, um, she was dying basically they couldn't do anything to help her by the time they found out that she was uh they had this disease and they couldn't give her a kidney because her body would have rejected it so she um she died when i was nine years old horrible like i said a horrible death very traumatized the home and it traumatized the home in such a way that my father who had he'd been a young violent man before he gave his life to jesus some of the anger started coming out some of the Violence and the brutality of his early upbringing he couldn't mask it anymore he couldn't it, it was just too under too much stress, so it started leaking out and the home became a kind of aggressive place and and he would snap and he would hit us and the, hit the beatings the hittings became beatings and um, it was a very hard time. Then my mother finally passed away when I was nine she was twenty six years old and uh, my dad We tried to, you know, we stumbled along for a little while. My dad, a couple, you know, a year later or so, he got married to a wonderful woman. Uh, She was, I was, I was 10 at that point. She was 20. My dad was 27. And um, she was a Christian woman from the church. Brenda Joyce Seal, a lovely woman, um, Irish-American. And uh, from, you know, Central Valley of California, people were farmers. So it was in China. It was like a culture shock both ways. You know, I got introduced to to an entirely different way of existing on the planet with baked granola and jam. You know, she did her own jellies and baked bread and all that kind of stuff. So my dad, um, my dad married this woman, wonderful woman, and uh, she exposed me to um, like the Bronte sisters, and I um, so I read, you know, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights. I read um, Victor Hugo um she i i was reading frankenstein dracula i was reading a lot of interesting literature um fiction that i would not have read otherwise my dad in the meantime was now at ucla greek classics major and philosophy major so i was also beginning to be interested in philosophy by ninth grade i was i was getting my philosophy on i was getting my literature on and i was already writing short stories so it was, it was, I already imagined that I would be a writer. I had a sense of darkness around me. The brutality in the home was still there, though my dad, um, eventually around this time with Brenda, a couple years after they got married, he got his own pulpit. The violence was still, you know, still sort of urgent at home. Um, and my stepmother was feeling oppressed by my father. And he eventually dropped out of the ministry because the home, he understood, he, was living a hypocritical life um that was the best thing he ever did it was the thing i'm most proud of him i thought moment of most integrity but she had had enough after four and a half years of of seeing the falseness and being scared and she left him uh, mid 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 70s and in the 10th grade it was really 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 a hard super hard time because now he was just full of rage There's two women he had lost in a period of five, six years. And he was sort of shattered with grief and rage. And uh, he dropped out of college and he never actually graduated. It was like a couple, couple courses away. He went to sell insurance, but insurance was really hard to sell. He couldn't focus. He went bankrupt and he brooded around the home like a drunk. And um, our life trajectory of rising up and being full moving forward and, and, um, you know, he was always working in college because he wanted to be a minister. And I was thinking I wanted to be a theologian. He finally got the pulpit and he had to give it up because his life had been so, he had kind of, you know, sabotaged himself. Um, all of this was alive in the moments after the divorce and the days and weeks and months. And uh, soon after uh, we moved back to East Los Angeles, when I was in eleventh grade, my dad happened to be beating me very viciously one day, and uh, later that night uh, they would uh, X-ray me at the hospital and find that I had broken rib and and fractured um, arm, and um, so that day he was beating me that afternoon. He left the apartment, and I had a concussion, but I locked my little brother, fourteen year old brother, in the in the bathroom. And I went to the kitchen. I got a steak knife and brought the steak knife out. And I went to the bedroom and I waited, put the knife under the pillow. And he came back to the apartment. I was 16 years old. I was skinny, you know, weighed probably 95 pounds. And this man had been terrorizing me all my life. And he comes in there ready for round two. He stands at the door, the bedroom, and he looks at me. And I look at him in my days and he looks over at the other end of the room and he sees a weight set there he sees a long bar with these 25 pound weights on it and he looks back at me looks back at the weights looks back at me with a smile and he starts walking over to the weights and i don't know what he's gonna do he's never used these weights or the weight bar before but he starts disassembling them and i wonder damn what what's he what's he gonna do this is like even for him this is a new level level of you know, savagery. If he hits me with the bar, that's bad. If he hits me with the weights, that's even worse. I, I don't know what's going on. So I pulled the knife out and I stand up. He looks at me, drops the weight and he stands there and says, you know, put the knife down, put the knife down. And I don't say anything. I'm just still, and he starts walking me. I think he realizes, you know, that I'm not going to do anything because I'm so scared and, uh, and I'm not saying anything. So he starts walking me, give me the knife, give me the knife. And I charge him, he puts a left arm up and we wrestle for a few seconds, but I'm able to stab him in the neck and I start twisting it to break the knife off and he falls on the ground. Yeah, you killed me, you killed me, he yells out. And I stand over him and I say something like, you brought this on yourself, you know? I was a biblical guy, so it was probably something like, this is what your sin have brought, sort of thing. Um, my brother was at the front door yelling, Joey, what's happening? Joey, what's happening? And I book. And we bolt out the door, and we run to my aunts. And it was a horrible, horrible moment. But my father survived. I we survived it all. We went into foster care. The authorities understood now that we needed to be taken care of. Uh, we went into foster homes. My dad was taken care of, and he didn't go to. I mean, he didn't. Um, he didn't go to prison. But he, we got taken away from him by the county. And um, and then my senior year, I came back home. And I came back home because he had showed legitimate penitence, you know, and, uh, you know, repentance. He felt bad. And um, we knew that he wasn't going to hit us anymore with supervision. Things would be well. So we came home and um, I was there for my senior year. But the the, the dam had broken. That's stabbing my father with my hand. Those years of rage of being bullied by him and bullied by people at school, I it unleashed something in me that was so um, elemental that I became a, an angry person who would let out my anger. Now I felt like if I took out my dad, who was the man who'd been abusing me, strangers had no play with me. They they had no play. They 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 meant nothing. If they bothered me, I could attack them. And over. Course of a few years, I lost my faith. I wanted. I felt entitled. I felt like something big was inside of me. You know, giant inside of me. This willpower, um, this this fearlessness, and going to college and making, you know, <clears throat> getting out and earning forty, fifty thousand dollars. It didn't feel like it was enough. So I dropped out of college, <clears throat> and I found entitled to more money. I thought, you know, I should be making forty, 000, fifty thousand dollars a month. Um, I imagined myself super wealthy and I imagined myself big, bigger than I had been. And it's interesting because this affected my, this was the beginning where when I stabbed my dad, I was changing my story. Up until that point, I had been a put upon little kid. And at that point, I became heroic. When we went to the foster care facility that night, all the abused kids, all he wanted to do was hear that story. None of them had stood up to to their abuser. I had. And I knew that that story carried great weight with it that first night, not only because it was dramatic and cinematic, but also because it meant that I was different than them and they knew I was different and I knew I was different than them. And that's what came up a few years later. Like I said, I felt this sense of entitlement, like I'm different than all of you. I have something in me. I can change my story. I can move. I can innovate. I can improvise and I could do it to my advantage and I could you sort of trade up. And, um, so I, I wanted to make money, and I had, was very angry, and I decided I wanted to go do crime because I could make money that way. And so it started off small, thieving, sentimental of man. I didn't want to work. I just wanted to take it. I wanted people to give me things. They weren't giving me fast enough, so I started taking things. I started little petty robberies, bonds, checks, um, stealing a car eventually. Over time, I was wanted, five counties, so I, I left to Mexico. You know I thought I was a little badass twenty three years old, doing a little crime twenty four but I got robbed in Mexico thirty something thousand dollars. I had to get like eight hundred bucks to my name. I was like, damn man i I need to I need to make more money. And that's when i I decided that I would rob banks. and uh, <clears throat> the next day, I came up to the United States and I robbed my first bank. Uh, fortunately, I, I I didn't get arrested for that bank robbery. The next day going into Mexico, they stopped me at the border, of the highway patrol, and they arrested me for the warrants that I was wanted for, for in five different counties in Southern California. So um, I went to prison knowing wow I had done bank robbery, That was easy, $4,500. So I was there for almost two years and waiting, thinking, I know what I'm doing when I get out. When I get out in January 1988, I know what I'm going to do. I might wait a a couple weeks because I don't want to go back to prison right away if I get caught right away. But I'll wait maybe two weeks a month, and then I'll get into it. And that's what happened in January 1988. I was 26 years old, and um, I went on a 14-month bank robbery spree in which I robbed um, uh, 30 banks. Now, this is the interesting thing. When I was in Mexico and I got robbed and I realized I had been kind of like I had been robbed by real criminals, uh, <clears throat> I wanted to become uh, a bigger criminal. I've I now been I've been a petty criminal up until that point. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that the men in Mexico read off me weakness. They read off me vulnerability. They read off me that I was a low-level criminal. I was suspicious and sketchy, but they knew that that was just, I could get played by them, and I got played by them. And I, so I wanted to ratchet up my my game. And turning myself into a bank robber put me in an entirely different league. And there's another occasion where I, I innovated with my story. I, I tweaked it and said, okay, my level of crime was not good enough. I need to amp it. I need to make it a little bit more cinematic, a little more dramatic. I need people to hear bank robber and think different than purse snatcher or snatching somebody's keys and taking the car. That, that, that it's a different thing, a whole different kind of crime. So turning myself into a bank robber was the next innovation. And it did, it. I got to prison. I was a bank robber. I went to federal penitentiary, maximum security penitentiary. And I, I committed crimes and ran with guys who were mafiosos from all over the, the country. You know, Rastafarians, Colombians, Italians, Irish, the Dixie mob, white supremacists, being Mexican. I just ran with all the Mexican gangsters on there. So, you know, I was trying, I really had this anger still. I had this rage inside of me, easy access. I had, I had learning. I had books I had literature. I had all those effete things from before. But at this point, I put aside all my knowledge and thinking. I was now just living by my loins. I was just a man of action. I wanted just my body to behave in the world. I didn't want to think about ideas. Um, so I was in there for the first couple of years running crazy. I mean, with a group of guys who were really kind of bad. Um, and, you know, moving, moving, moving like that. And then my ex-salmist was murdered. And I was put in a solitary confinement under investigation for the homicide with five other Mexican men. And, um, and you could read all about this in the mem- my memoir, The Man Who Outgrows a Prison Cell, Confessions of a Bank Robber, where I go into what happened in solitary confinement. It reduced me. It broke me. It halved me. It humbled me. And, um, and I changed my life after about a year, and they're struggling uh, to keep saying had a hallucination, a break a breakdown, which ended up being a breakthrough. And um, I gave up. I gave up the fight. And it wasn't I just gave up being a criminal. It wasn't just, oh, when I get out, I don't want to rob banks anymore. It was actually, I want to be at peace. I want to find out who I am. I knew enough from my learning to know that there was an idea out there that we could become more whole, that we didn't need to act against our conscience and against ourselves, that there was a way in which you could achieve balance. People called it spirituality. People said you could find it through prayer. I had all that language, but that had proven ineffective over the years. Nonetheless, I was still attracted to the notion of a, a whole man, somebody moving in concert with everything they had, And utilizing it without judgment, but mostly just trying to achieve balance. Um, And that's what I wanted because I knew my life had been so off kilter. And I was unhappy, utterly unhappy in solitary confinement. And, And so I quit. I was let out after, like I said, two years. None of us were involved in the murder. They found the guy who actually had done the murder. He was still living out in the general prison population. They arrested him, let us all out. And I was, I quit. So, for the last three and a half years of my sentence, the second half of my sentence i um I basically um started reading and writing and um writing my story, trying to get to what had happened and chronicling all this stuff that I've just told you, trying to write the stories down as story, not as ideas, but just what do I remember happening but once I laid it out on the page. These things which had all been discrete memories bumping around in my brain and periodically being triggered and I would remember something and I would get angry or I would get sad or whatever. And once they were organized on the page, I could see all these patterns of my life. It's crazy. I could see um, that some things where I had thought had originated here in, in 1973. It turns out that when I wrote these stories out, I actually started my money obsession much earlier I started my rule breaking much earlier. I could see the origins of things now because they were in place next to things before them and things after them. And then something had occurred in that moment. It was really fascinating to learn about myself by now having it on the page. And that's where I got the concept of, I'm changing my life by owning my story. And I came out of prison. It was one of the first things I talked about. It's how do you change? I said, I owned my story. Mm -hmm. I started an organization in 2008 promoting the concept own your story that was the name of it own your story because if you own your story it doesn't harass you anymore it's not in your head these discrete memories that can just pop up and all of a sudden you're off kilter again i really began to see where i got angry the origins of my rage the origins of my misogyny the origins of my racism the origins of it all it was right there and then i did the work to try and i read some things on mindfulness I read some stuff on um, language metaphors we live by by the linguist uh, linguistics professor at Berkeley George Lakoff so went into my cell and when I read that book it blew my mind because I understood that everything that I was trying to do in terms of change myself was I was trying to change the way I talked about myself and that's what I had learned from the little Buddhist readings and this linguistics stuff mm-hmm. and that is where I worked on, I focused on that. How am I thinking? What's the metaphors I use to describe myself? And how are they How are they traps? I worked really hard on this stuff and I'm writing a second book on this right now. But, um, so I got out of prison in 1996, A Changed Man. And when I got out the last two years of my time in prison, I had a, a correspondence with a man, a writer named Richard Rodriguez. And Richard Rodriguez and I talked and. First couple letters, he says, hey, you're already a writer. When you get out, I'm going to help you publish. So when I got out, I wrote a first piece three months out of prison about how I was scared of that 90 days coming up. Because the first 90 days is when guys mess up and go back. And I wanted to make it a 90 days so badly. I wrote that piece for the San Francisco Examiner. An editor at the LA Weekly read it. And she said, will you write a longer piece for us? I did. 1,500 word essay for them. She became the op-ed editor at the LA Times and asked me to write an op-ed in 1997, nine months out of prison, when the these two guys went into a bank in North Hollywood, a Bank of America, and they robbed it. And they walked out with guns, just blazing the cops. It went international, this story. The cops came around. They were just shooting at the cops and shooting cops. And it was, a, it was this big Terminator kind of thing. They are just walking down the street shooting at cops. Uh, I wrote an op-ed about that because everyone was calling it a botched heist once these guys got killed. And I said it was a successful suicide. And that got me 48 hours. And it, it launched my TV career in terms of being a talking head on mm-hmm. crime. I would get to places like Nightline and CNN and eventually arguing with uh, Bill O'Reilly about the <laughs> Scott Peterson case. Uh, that's That's what I did. That's what that helped. But it also got me writing about um, writing op-eds in almost every national newspaper with the exception of the New York Times. And um, so that's what I did. I got tired of writing op-eds. We so wrote the, the memoir. I got published in 2004, eight years after I was out. And I've turned to writing for writing scripts and turned to writing workshops. And, and really most importantly, um, besides being a father the last seven and a half years, almost eight years, has been the work that I do um, trying to uh, help women find their voices. A Mm -hmm. friend of mine has this op-ed project named Katie Ornstein, a good friend of mine. When she launched it, um, I was there trying to help her um, help women develop skills and and use their expertise to write op-eds so that we can have more female voices thought leadership on the op-ed internet, on the national op-ed pages But I've done a lot more mentoring uh, in juvenile hall, young writers, females in and out of prison, and the writing workshops I've conducted. When I was a bad man, the worst thing, the thing I regret the most was the emotional abuse that I did with women who loved me. I wasn't a physically abusive man, and that's not to say it was better than emotional abuse, but it's one of my greatest regrets. In fact, the bank robberies, my greatest regret is not that I robbed banks because I did time for that. It's actually that I really... This rage that I took to the towers was ferocious and I didn't even need to pull a gun. I would just menace them enough for them to panic and give me all the money. And to see those faces is to make somebody that reduced by your by your uh, aggression is a re- it's a horrible thing. You know, I went out and made victims after I had been victimized. It's really a painful, painful regret for me. And I can never do anything about it. Um, I can't approach these women and say, let me be, you know, please accept my apology. But I do live a life now in which um, all the work um, that I do and emphasize is to try to promote female voice and and, and thought leadership. And now I have, I have a daughter. And so that's where all my energy goes there too, my creative energy mm-hmm. is trying to make her um, strong enough and confident enough. So that she will usurp my voice one day, and the advantage of being an older father is that I don't have as much ego involved like my dad did when he was young, and he took so much of what we did personally. I actually look forward for her to, to, you know, take over. (laughs) I want her to have as strong a voice and a ferociousness that I have, Mm. Um, and I try to cultivate that in her. Anyway, I'm trying to do work in Hollywood. Um, but in, in the process, you know, I'm trying to, um, you know, do many things, but I'm working on that writing. The interesting thing is one of the people that I <clears throat> helped write and, uh, how encouraged to write was Piper Kerman, Orange is a New Black, mm-hmm. I knew her husband and, um, when she went to prison, none of us knew that she was going to prison. <clears throat> um, and then she went and we all knew she was there. And I was asked to send her my book. So I sent her my book, and then we started a correspondence, just like I'd have at Rich Rodriguez, in which I told her, listen, all your friends, they love you, and all of them know you better than I do, but none of them know what I know you're going through right now, and here's how I can help. And she would ask me things. She would tell me things she was going through, and I would encourage her. And that voice, knowing that I knew what she was going through out here, and me being a stranger, I understood what I was like because Richard was my stranger. And you could talk to strangers differently. And that's how our friendship grew. And I told her, write a book. Write a book. You need to write this stuff down every night. Write something funny that happened to you, you heard. Or write something, and write something sad that you mm-hmm. heard or dark. She got out and uh, she still wasn't sure she wanted to write. And I, me and other friends, we did our work on like, you got to write. Turns out, when the book got published, I didn't realize it, but there I was on page two seventy-seven or something. My one of my letters to her made it into the book, and I was, it was one, I was instrumental encouraging her to write and eventually write that book. And I was really brilliant. Last week, we were at Stanford together on, and in front of you know six seven hundred people, having a conversation about her book and the story and prison life. And I moderated a question and answer and we had a conversation and it was beautiful. It was amazing. I'm sorry for these noises. (laughs) Let me turn that down. Anyway, so that's where my life is. That's where I focus on. You know, I'm constantly trying to help people with a story I learned about story by innovating with my story. And that's my greatest, my greatest um, advice to people is once you own it, once you put it down on paper, you can see it the patterns of your life it's there it's not just these memories bumping up against each other in your head it's right there and write it as articulately as you can with as much detail the images as you can and 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 born from those details you'll find some emotions in there that you've forgotten or you will label them correctly now you labeled them wrong before. I remember discovering I hated somebody and what I or thought I loved somebody, and I realized as I wrote it out that I actually was. I hated them. Or some people I hated when I wrote about them in the thing. I realized I was already halfway in love with them. You don't know these things when they're just memories in your head. But when you write out the narrative, you can really um, accurately identify the emotions in your story. That was helpful. Mm-hmm. But I also tell people that my, my life is a perfect example. Like I embody the notion that you can innovate with your story. Mm-hmm. It's one thing, but it's never locked. You're never locked in it you can move this way you can move this way you could tweak this you could tweak that and your story is this fluid thing when you own it then you can innovate with it and then you can game it that's my next concept that's the next the next book the idea of gaming your story um and that's and I will go into that in my book about how part of changing my life was pl- realizing my identity was fluid and saying okay how can i how can I create some some propulsion to move it in that direction. And that's what I call gaming your story. It's figuring out exactly the things you need to do to move it in that direction so that you become this, this, this different person. It's not performance. You don't want to pretend to be somebody else, but you actually can change in very uh, elemental ways and, 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 and change back to, to who you were to begin with, that we've moved away from, you know, Anyway, all that's to say, I'm I'm living the dream. <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm a happy father. I'm proud of my daughter. I'm happy with the work that I do. I'm continuing to to write. And as you, you know, you read that piece that I did uh-huh. for Medium, which is a very popular piece, uh more popular than I ever imagined it would be. Um, there's people who wanna know about this topic. Mm-hmm. And hyper has opened up this subject in a way that's become more conversational to talk about. The criminal justice system—a lot of stuff going on around criminal justice issues. You know, legalizing weed and not sending people to prison for weed. Um, and now there's this big thing about the death penalty. A lot of people are revisiting that. Just a lot of things, and in, uh, in that—that the, the orange is the new black house because it's that fish out of water story. And people are willing to think about prison. What would I do if I was in there? Because this 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 great Netflix series implicates people that way. It's really beautiful, wonderful. Anyway, I'm super optimistic about my life. Um, I'm in a great place. I'm happy. I'm far away from those years, you know. I'm 17 years out of prison now. Wow. Um, and uh, I'm, excuse me. This is this is the 18th year, and in July it'll be 18 years. So a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm here. You got what questions you got? What
2: is what that? Yeah, well, the, I mean, I, I'm sitting here, you know, obviously I, I'm trying to balance listening to this amazing story and, and writing down whatever questions I have. That's why I didn't want to say a word or interrupt you at all. I have, I have a ton of questions.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Um, I want to go back to the very beginning of this. Uh, mainly because you know the interesting thing about somebody like you to me is I, I see this really fascinating dichotomy of how you you know you were on two potential paths somebody who you know potentially could uh, you know clearly was very religious but I mean you seem like you lost your way so I want to I want to talk uh, uh, about a, a couple of things in the very early part of this uh, if you don't mind no you know, of course one of the questions I, I want to ask is about the loss of of a mother I mean I can't imagine. Um, such a thing, especially as a nine-year-old child. And the reason that I ask about loss a lot is it seems like this is something that is a running theme. Loss and pain seem to be almost common threads between all our guests. And, you know, having been somebody who actually was negatively affected by that loss, it seems, uh, you know, I've seen two, I've seen both sides of this coin where somebody has been very, very negatively affected by a loss, but for others, it becomes a catalyst for making positive changes, and I think you're you're really the first where it, it really, you know, led you down somewhat of a dark path. I'm curious, you know, when you when you talk to people about loss, when you talk about these kinds of traumatic experiences, even how do you get them to process something like that so it doesn't send them down in, in, into sort of a downward spiral?
1: Well, you see, the thing about it is that Everybody experiences grief. That's just the way it goes. You know, you have grief when you, you know, your first reject love rejection. Everyone experiences grief. The, the, but grief hits people differently. If you've been told that, um, if you've not been um, educated how to handle your emotions, then then, and you also are full of, of self-loathing, then grief is going to hit you, and there's an alchemy that's going to occur with the grief. That's going to make it tricky to manage and get through without hating yourself, blaming yourself, or not even trying not to deal with it and creating all sorts of, you know, self-sabotaging things so that you can have these defense mechanisms so you don't have to deal with it. There's that people. That's that, that, that human material is out there. And then there's other human material who have love and strength and home, and consistency, and safety, and they've been well-fed, and they've been told that they're pretty good, and they have a good, you know, they have solid, They, they, they you know, they doubt themselves sometimes, and sometimes they hate themselves, but overall, they have a, a sort of healthier approach to life. When they get hit with grief, and if they've been taught how to, that, that their emotions are natural and work through them, and process them out, and here's how we do it as a group, let's go to church, like have some semblance of of um, of um handling them in a healthy way, then grief is going to ripple through them differently, a different alchemy. In which you'll get processed and work through and they'll they'll come up with strategies to deal with it through um, through healthy religious um, um, practices or whatever meditation. They'll they'll do it. So we're working with there's no two, there's no one person who's gonna be hit by grief. There's there's several ways of there's different types of human material when grief hits it. And the mm-hmm. one I usually work with are people not Who've been through prison, and most of them have been traumatized before they got to prison. They didn't get to prison because they were healthy minded. They got to prison because they were abused. There was a lot of grief in childhood. They didn't manage. There was a lot of morbidity, a lot of death around them. Gang members killed, family members killed. They saw a lot of blood on the streets. They were brutalized. Those people, grief hits them hard, and it hits them tricky, and they end up dealing with their grief through um, violence which then creates more grief in their life because they're acting against their conscience. And then it also allows them to get into drugs that complicates their life because they have to do more things to act against the conscience. They move farther away from being able to get to the origin of, of this behavior. That's the people I work with a lot and it's super challenging to get them to go there because there's so much cloudiness there. Mm -hmm. But I do have friends who didn't have any of that. I had a friend, she, um, she lost her firstborn son to leukemia, and she had two daughters and a baby boy when he died. The baby boy, when he turned five, he got leukemia, and he fought it off. And the, you know, the, the, there's a chance like the 15-year-old could come back, and, and he could die too. She lives with the grief of the firstborn with the knowledge that the second one could happen to him again. She lives a lovely open life she She has these cafes in l a called Death Cafes where people go and talk about grief in healthy ways and they work through it she If you saw her and met her, she's so positive and optimistic, you would not know that this woman has been was once devastated by grief, but she had a lot of love growing up she could she bounce back from it and she manages it, and she approaches life with a bunch of strategies that work for her mm-hmm. so there's no one thing about like here's how you handle it Sure, you, you have to deal with the material in front of you and kind of listen and learn what the grief was, how it rippled through them. If you have an imagination like I do, I can think of ways how we might get them to begin talking about it. In my case, the reason it worked badly for me is that when I cried after my mother died, the religious people around me were so uncomfortable with my crying. They told me not to cry. Because my mother was in heaven, in fact, I should celebrate because she was absent from the body, but she was present with the Lord, which created in me um, a conflict because it was natural. Emotionally, it's natural to grieve the loss of your mother. That's your elemental connection to the planet. I was in her womb. We had connected by umbilical cord. We shared against blood. That's a big dislocation from the universe to occur. I needed to cry. I needed to suffer. But what they created in me was the occasion to feel my tears now were selfish because I should be celebrating her presence in heaven. And it made me feel inferior as a spiritual being. And I created the occasion for me to despise my own nature. That created confusion in me, emotional dissonance. What I know now, a child comes to me crying because her mother died. I'm never going to say some nonsense like that to make them move further away from themselves they need to integrate tears and grief and pain into their life know it's healthy so they can move through it because Mm -hmm. in those emotions are beautiful strategies to get get you out of it if you're joyful and and you hug someone and you laugh and you that the emotion carries with it its own intelligence hug someone laugh and it's out if you're sad you know, cry, yank, yank out your hair, pound your chest, get it out of you. It has an intelligence. And then you, it works through you, eventually works through you. That was the, the, that was the thing with me. It got all my emotions got clogged. Nobody gave me any language that had any dexterity, any subtlety, any no you need to move in this area with, with like a supple intelligence. None of the people around me did, had that. They could not help me. And I was a very sensitive child. Wow. And already at that point, I had enough understanding to know that something was wrong here. I couldn't articulate it until you know until I grew older. But the, does that answer your question about how? Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, I love this. I mean, it, it's really, really just mind-blowing stuff. Um, and, and like I said, I have a ton of other questions. One of the things that you brought up uh, while you were telling me, you know, sort of the whole story of what's led you to to today was, uh, you know, the early sort of literary influences in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's actually quite intriguing because, as I said, I mean, it's such an odd parallel. You know, when I imagine the life that you had, I don't imagine a young boy. Like, if you tell me that story and you didn't tell me the literature part, I would never imagine the literary part. And I'm very curious kind of how those literary influences that you mentioned um, have shaped you know, um, your own story and, and your own view of the world uh, as you've gone forward with things.
1: Well, you know, a lot of people ask me, how did you well you know, solitary confinement work for you. We should put everyone in there then." And I tell them, "No, the difference between me and most of the people who go in there, you know, and actually solitary broke me, so it was both the worst and best thing that ever happened to me. It was one of those paradoxes. But one of the reasons I could survive it and get out and move forward with the life that I have today after being so um, negatively impacted by my experience in there. But I went into prison with resources that most people don't have, private education, language, resources, the books all day long, ideas. I was trained to look for meaning in things. And I was given language. I was, you know, I was, it had philosophy. I understood how to create arguments. I knew story arcs. I knew the redemptive story. I knew all that all day long. So when I could turn to my internal interior world, I had resources in there. One of them, you asked, you know, how's it affected my story? Well, in the beginning, I saw it quickly as a Jonah story. I just saw it as, okay, Jonah, God called him to do something. He rebelled. He started going the opposite way, and God said, all right, you know, I'm just going to throw in a fish, and he's going to spit you back on the, on the shore where you need to be. I thought that that's what my story was. It was a simple, like, you know, quick acting against what God wants you to do. Um, I quickly realized, though, that if I was going to change, it wasn't going to be with God. So that story changed, but I could still keep the redemptive arc because you could have redemption stories that um, don't have God in them. It's just, you know, it's a redemptive arc. And so I thought of my story that way, like, I'm you know, prodigal son returns, you know, um, and is humbled and is willing to do whatever to get right with his community and his family. And in that case, with the father. Um, so, you know, I had I had stories that I could kind of say it works this way. Let me, let me think of it this way. Mm-hmm. um and then you know as as i matured and started working with my story more and more you know it becomes many things you know i'm breaking my story down now all the time it's part fiction and non-fiction. i'm merging fiction and nonfiction fiction with my story as i think about turning it into a film mm-hmm. it's this entirely new way of blurring those lines um mm-hmm. and uh, because i've written memoir and i tell my story i understand that Memory is fluid and, and, and porous, and there's a lot of other things. Anyway, storytelling becomes even more sophisticated than, than the rudimentary Aesop's fables I was working with in the beginning. But I'm able to think about story that way because I had literature,
3: mm-hmm.
1: because I had ideas, and because I understood I had language that could um, that I could grow off of. So when I started reading Foucault and other people talking about... Um, language or whatever uh, other ideas that were a little bit more postmodern I got them but I didn't get them in an academic didactic way I thought how can I how can they mean something to me in my life how can I turn them into you know feed them into the coal of my engine so that it continues to move me forward and it drive me it's part of the it's part of the you know locomotion of my story um, mm-hmm. so ideas and thinking was very very crucial for me to have had that training as a kid, you know, I, I also had Greek and Hebrew under my belt because my dad always wanted us to tr- grow up and translate, um, I don't know, translate verses. So I could read Greek even when I was in prison. And I was laughing at a friend in the letter one. I was like, "Look, it. I didn't. I haven't written the Greek alphabet and whatever like twenty years or so, or you know, eighteen years. But there I was writing. I could just. It just. I can't help it. Some of that stuff has always oh, just stayed with me. And I'm grateful to my father for that. Because my dad actually provided me rigor, and rigor is important if you want to be a writer. You have to be able to sit your ass down. You need to be able to grab an idea and fight it onto the page sometimes. You just need to grapple with it, and you need to stay there, and you need to keep thinking, how can I make this as sharp as possible? How can I hone this argument? And I was doing that stuff very early. Mm-hmm. So um, it's how, it was certainly helpful. But also in literary ways, it wasn't just how can it help the process, how can it help technique. It was important when my father was reading to me at night and I was in ninth grade and he's reading me Kafka's The Hunger Artist, I, and I write this in the book, I knew there were things in that story and there was things in that moment being read to by this man who brutalized me but was reading this lovely, amazing, far out, you know, absurd story to me. I knew there was something there I would one day get. I didn't know it was irony. I didn't know a lot of things those words yet in ninth grade but that feeling that like i'm gonna pursue knowing what this is one day i'll know it i was on the lookout for seeing meaning in stories and stories and 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 that sort of thing so when i changed my life it was like okay what is it meant to now
3: mm-hmm.
1: what does this mean what can it mean what did it mean in the past at one time one of the things that people like about my writing is because I'm a different man and I know what I was like before I bring in I lived on the other side of taboo for so long I can see how I saw something way back then very well very clearly and I could show you how I looked at it then and I could show you how I look at it now and the insights are surprising to people I can tell you exactly when I became a misogynist. I can tell you exactly when I, you know, like there's things I could tell you about and why from that perspective, I can look, I looked at women this way, why I exploited them this way. It's in the book. It's in the middle of the book where I call the asshole, cha- the asshole chapters. It's where I was a really bad guy and I break it down. Mm-hmm. I break it down. I'm observe. I let you see. Here's what my thinking was in that frame of mind. And so now when I talked about things, it's always with an understanding that my ideas have migrated over time. And I know the migration. I can recognize and spot it and highlight it
0: <clears throat> wow.
1: precisely because I know that stories change, <clears throat> because I know that things' meaning changes. And what things meant to me before don't mean that to me today. They mean something else. Anyway, that's where literature was really great. And yeah. having my dad and mother expose it to me was really helpful.
2: Amazing. So, it, even more questions. Uh, you know, from this part of the story, that is such a mind-blowing perspective on literature and reading. I mean, I love it. It seems like the, the running theme throughout our conversation has been that your story is one that continually evolves. So, uh, you know, I want to dig deep into the story itself. Um, Absolutely. You know, th- th- there's two sort of things. I mean, I feel like the moment when you stab your dad is is sort of a crossroad between two choices. I'm either college bound or I'm bound for a life of of trouble. And it didn't look like actually.
1: It's, it's actually something different. but really? I mean, it is I'm two sure choices.
2: Yeah, please tell me. I'd love
1: one. To one is, and I, I'll just I'll bring it up more, more <clears throat> in terms of aesthetics. One is, I continue to be the the one who loves language and loves books and loves you know literature and the arts and and, and thinking abstraction, and I'm living away from. My body, because I have no ownership of my body. I'm just a punching bag. But at least my mind will be <clears throat> be pursuing the violin. I was playing the violin. And I was like, I was what I call my quote unquote, like my effete endeavors. Or I can become a, a man who owns his body and lives by body. If, in, in simpler terms, I'm becoming a man of action, a doer, not a thinker, not somebody who postulates and theorizes. That was what I was going to be a philosopher, a theologian. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be sitting there with my glasses and my, behind my desk and safe. Or I could be my body and be dangerous and, and just do and live like I'm just going to act now. I'm tired of being put upon. That was a choice to me that day, more than anything, because that's exactly what played out over the years. I didn't know it at the time. But if you look at it, it was very clear. When I would think about, oh, I could think like that, I would laugh. Yeah, forget thinking. Do subvert thinking. That's what you used to do. You used to be a thinker. Now just be a man of action. Be bold. Be brave. Run through your fears. Thinking was a place where you could hide from your fears. Thinking was a place where you could hide from action. All you're doing is competing with a bunch of other nerds and geeks. Don't do that. Come over here and compete with real men and understand the codes of male codes. You know, learn how to spit far you know, learn how to laugh loud and obnoxious, be a man. That, that was what was happening to me in that day. What was I going to be? Was I going to be a feat or was it going to be a doer? Wow. A thinker or a doer. That's what it was to me.
2: Amazing. So on that note, I mean, you chose the path of doing, which um, obviously led to, <laughs> to a lot of interesting things. But yeah. know, one of the, the sort of common themes throughout all of this from everything you tell me is ambition. Like it's clear, yeah. but it's misdirected ambition. Um, and that's, that's what I'm curious about is, is, sort of, you know, you talk so much about owning your story and it seems to me like you wanted to own the story of I'm a doer, I am yeah. somebody important, and, you know, and it's interesting. I think that we all have this sense that I think that it's something there right inside of us, you know, it's almost that childhood dream type of thing where we all have this sense that we were put here to do something, something that, that truly matters, something that's going to make a difference in other mm-hmm. people's lives. Mm hmm. And yet the way it played out for you, I mean, it, it, you know, you got to it in a, in a very sort of roundabout and almost self-destructive way. But I'm curious, you know, in that moment of, of saying, you know, I'm going to rob banks, what's the story there that you're telling yourself? And um, I so I have really absurd questions, obviously, because this is a world that I'm completely unfamiliar with. I mean, as you're actually going through robbing a bank, I mean, what is going through your mind? Does it give you a sense of power uh, and how do you get away with it? That's the other, that's the sort of silly yeah. question.
1: No, you, the, I, want, I want to go to your first question first real quickly. The way I looked at it is this way. Growing up, I I, I was abused and brutalized and put upon. And I, I, I decided I'm not that guy, man. I'm actually, I'm bigger than this. I knew in my heart that I was big and I didn't. I didn't know exactly how big, but I knew one thing. I was not supposed to be beat up like everybody. That's just a victim afraid. That's not supposed to be me. I thought I was a giant. But evidence, you know, didn't support that. So it was incumbent on me to become the giant I thought I was. And I, I you know, in, 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 in very, you know, in, in prison parlance, I coughed up in that second. I went and I became a man. I stabbed my dad, tried to kill him thought I had killed them for several hours, actually, and, and changed my life radically. I altered my story. I became a doer. I became somebody who could put a marker down for the rest of his life and say, I am unimpeachably brave. Boom, look what I did. Nobody does this. They continue to get beat up. They grow up and they beat up their kids and their wives and their dogs, but they do not try to kill their torment her in childhood. I did. It, it marked me. Now, then I became a petty criminal.
3: I'm like, what am I doing? I'm bigger,
1: I'm a big, I'm a giant. I'm not supposed to be petty. My my story is supposed to matter. My who I am is supposed to matter, even in the criminal world. I just got robbed by criminals. How did I not see that coming? Well, I'll tell you why. Cuz I'm small. I'm petty, but I'm not supposed to be. Let me tweak this story. Let me innovate with it and let me become a bank robber. Let me become this thing that 's mythical in the American consciousness. We will romanticize the bank robber. Every Hollywood hunk has played a bank robber. I mean, when Dillinger was killed in that theater outside the theater, he was watching Clark Gable play a bank robber so since then we've had we've had rob redford and and Paul Newman, and then the next ones were Robert de niro and Al Pacino. And then after that was Clooney and Brad. Everybody plays a bank robber. It's the most romanticized criminal character in the American consciousness. I became that. And now I was like putting a thing down. Boom. I will be unimpeachably cool for the rest of my life because I am now a bank robber. I'm I'm not a serial killer. I'm not a baby killer. I'm a bank robber. And so that was changing my narrative again. But then I go to prison, I get locked up, and I'm looking at 99 years for this homicide that I didn't do. And I'm like, I'm not supposed to end up in this cell. This is crazy. How the hell did this happen? I'm supposed to be somebody. I innovated again, and I changed my life to become this person. I said, I'm supposed to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. Screw all this nonsense. And I innovated, and I became the person now who comes out and is able to get on TV, is able to lecture, is able to to write books, and able to educate people about about their story and empower people and inspire people. And this is where I was supposed to be. I went the long way around. But I got here every time by innovating with my story and and trying to direct it to to be larger and have more impact. That's out of the way. Let's talk about the banks. I'll give you a quick thing about going to banks. Driving every bank, it doesn't matter from the first day to the last one, your body wants to rebel. Your body knows you're putting it at risk putting it in danger, and this is what I loved about bankruptcy, because in, on the way there, when my stomach would get knots, everything in your body that, that happens when you're afraid, it happens in my body, too. The difference is um, with most people, not with you, because I know you surf, and you have to overcome your fear to surf. you got to charge it that way that can kick your ass and kill you, even. So, I know you know how to marshal through something and, and push through the fear to make something happen, to get to that place of balance or peace or satisfaction, whatever you're going for. But most people, for the most part, when they confront fear, they back off, especially a fear that's so radical that it makes you afraid that if you die, if you keep going forward, you might be extinct. And that's a possibility of robbery. You walk out and there's a bunch of cops and they shoot you dead. Your body understands this. So once you go down, you get a headache, my jaw is clenching, sweaty, my hands are just can't you know, jumping off the steering wheel. I want a a wave of fatigue goes over me, so I can almost pass on the side of the road. Pretty intense, very intense experience. What I needed to do is I needed to get angry. I needed to summon my rage by thinking of things that had humiliated me in the past, you know, from bullies from childhood all the way to my dad and, you know, the stabbing. And then this monster would rise up in me, and a level of peace, you know, struck me, you know, came over me that was, was, was transcendental, man. It was spiritual practically. I was no longer afraid. In fact, I felt like I could just handle, I could, it was endorphin high or something. It was something. I just felt like I could handle anything. I had a giant, I felt a giant, like a giant. And, and I would go and direct that rage with great efficiency and make it through those banks. I just marshaled my, my, my intensity took it into those places and, and just with my words, I can march them to the vault, I could just make them give me money. I can make a couple of tellers do once I was I was so dissatisfied with the little money that this little bank gave me that even though the cops were on the way, on the way out, I just walked in the bank next door and robbed it too. I was that <laughs> that's how fearless I was. And crazy, which is partly what that fearlessness is. But that's what it was like. You had to push through the fear. Wow. And I did.
2: Uh, You you really, this is just mind blowing. Um, so I have, I have one more question around this and and I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. Um, there's a a few more questions I have specifically around sort of the the media work that you've done. Um, you know, one of the things that that has been an ongoing theme throughout our conversation is this notion of owning your story. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's very near and dear to my heart because it's something that I've realized, uh, it, it took me a long time to get okay with that. And I realized, you know, what, do, what do people come and do on the unmistakable creative? They come and own their stories. I think that's really, a, you know, one of the things that mm-hmm. is what makes this so appealing to me and why I love the people who come to this show so much. But you know, the thing that I, I'm finding as I'm talking to you is it seems like if we're stuck, owning our story is such a fantastic way to get unstuck and Absolutely. people who are caught in stories that are not serving them, uh, I feel like that's that's kind of an epidemic of our culture today, and I'm very curious kind of you know what advice you might have for them I mean for and the funny thing is I doubt that their circumstances are anywhere as near as dire as the ones you've been in
1: in fact, mine was tougher to change because I had to really do a lot of work on myself years and years and years to change mm-hmm. the, the problem I find with most people with uh, owning their story is they they look at story as a static thing. I look at story as an as um as a fluid thing, and I look at story as a thing to play with. I look at life as being playful. Um, the, the strategy for anything is to play. That's why gaming your story was such a big thing for me. The reason people have a problem bottom line with their owning their story is they're too attached to their story. By that, I mean too much ego is involved in story. One of the best things that happened to me and I'll give you an example of what I mean by game your story right here. And this is, this is a, almost a, an, a, a meditative approach to, to your life story than anything else. Um, When I was in prison, I started realizing very early in my change that I used to think that people did things that made me angry. And there was a very big, um, and, you know, I write about this in the book and I write about it in in various essays and I've talked about it a lot. What the biggest thing occurred when I realized in solitary confinement that I got angry, very, very, very angry and I want to hurt someone, but nothing had happened to me. Nobody had said anything, nothing. And I realized it was all in my head, but I had a rage like I had never, you know, as as big and bad as anything i'd had before and so what i did is i went in my head and said okay what was i thinking about and i traced it a couple thoughts back and i found the origin of my rage in my thought that blew my mind i realized oh my god every, it's just like I, it's my thoughts it's how i perceive things that's what's kicking off the rage not what's happening i've been blaming people on my i've been blaming circumstances, i've been blaming it at all and and, and it works to our advantage to think that other people are the reasons we don't succeed, we are making mistakes, we're angry all the time. We all and I used to tell my girlfriends, why'd you make me get angry? You knew that was going to get me angry when you said that. You must have wanted me to get angry. I, I would blame them for, I blame the victim you know, for my insecurities. All that to say, eventually I realized, tracing this over and over in solitary, the origin of most of my rage was wounds. I could easily find that I was wounded all the time. I got hurt all the time. I got angry. I got scared, felt helpless. I got angry. Weakness underwrote my rage. And I was like, oh, my God, all my all these years my ego's been telling me, oh, man, I'm a good guy. Other people are messing me up. They're throwing me off my game. So finally when I got out of um, solitary confinement and I knew that I had this tendency to, to you know, this, this really volatile temper, I wanted to um, I wanted to play with it a little bit. So I would go down to the chow hall, and it's easy to feel quote-unquote disrespected by people in prison, just like it is to mm-hmm. find all sorts of ways of getting disrespected out here, and then feeling like you're obligated to do something about it. So before I would go to the chow hall, I would tell myself, okay, somebody's going to do something there that normally would have gotten me very angry, and in the past may have been a reason for me. It would have instigated activity, action on my part. Somebody may have given me a broken cookie, Somebody may be giving me the last watery part of the jello instead of a fresh, you know, solid jello scoop from the next tray. Something I would feel like they thought I was some sort of weakling and some shitty prisoner or something. And then I would have to like, hey, man, you better respect me and throw it in their face and then get locked up in solitary confinement. That kind of craziness, right? But this time I would go down there and say, OK, who's it going to be? Is it going to be the lasagna guy? Is he going to give me a corner piece rather than the next piece, which is a nice big piece from the middle. Is it going to be the jello guy? Is it going to be the cookie guy? Like I didn't know, but I would try and tell myself who's going to mess up. And then I would say, okay, it's going to be the lasagna guy. I'd go down there and it would be the cookie guy. And on the way to my seat, I'd be like, ah, I thought it was going to be the lasagna, but it was a cookie guy. But, but distancing myself from my insecurity and knowing that this in the past would have been something that upset me. I was able to play with it. I knew that these are things that weren't in themselves things to get me angry I chose in that instance not to be angry by something that in the past would have gotten me angry and at that point I just kept doing it with my life and I do it today I mock my seriousness when I start getting angry I mock my I laugh at myself because I know if I'm angry it's really disguising a wound and I'm puffing myself up and it's ridiculous and so I mock that ego Most people are stuck in their stories because their ego is stuck in that story and they take themselves too seriously. You want to play with your story. you got to take yourself less seriously. You have to be willing to play with it. You have to be light because owning your story and innovating your story means you need to be nimble. You need to know that certain things that you thought mattered about you, they really don't. Those things that you think, oh, I'm really that person, you really might not be. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you, that might be exactly the reason why you're stuck, because you're actually thinking you're this and you're not. And you've thought that all your life, and if you really investigate, you're going to find out you think that because people told you that. That's not really who you are. Getting wow. away from, from, from being stuck is really investigating and playing and trying to be nimble with your identity and that means that someone like me, who is very important for people to take me very seriously, I like it when my daughter like, like calls me annoying. That is another way for me. when My dad would never have let me call him annoying because his ego was too thick. I don't take myself so seriously. But I get bummed out when my daughter says I'm annoying. I don't care. I just it's not who I'm fine with who I am and I know that's not who I am and that's the way I might be perceived and that might be the attitude for the day but I do not lock into that nonsense and so that makes me more able to move I don't get stuck that's that's my big thing with people and I find it all the time wow and you you get somebody in front of me and say, I'm having problems changing. I really want to change. I will test how much I really want to change by inv- helping them investigate how seriously they take certain things of their life, which are where they're stuck. You know, which is where they're they're rooted and they can't move around that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, you got to be willing to laugh at yourself here. Yeah. It's very, very challenging <laughs> for people to laugh about things that they take very seriously about their identities. Wow. Then you realize, mm-hmm. You might not innovate as much. Those of us who have seen how often we've been insecure and silly with vanity, we're just like, ah, okay, I'm ready to move away from that. That's, that's, I'm ridiculous here. What do I need to do? Mm-hmm. You know, It's like entrepreneurs constantly moving and moving because they're like, okay, I messed up. I failed on that one. What's the next chance I get to fail? Where can I really <laughs> They're not afraid to go out there and try to like innovate and, and fail again. That's just what, that's what you have to almost be with your
2: spirit. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I believe. I could be wrong. Mind-blowing. All right. So let's, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit um and we'll start wrapping things up here. I mean, part of how I found you uh was, you know, first we had Meg Warden here, which really, you know, was a paradigm shift for me personally. And, and, you know, my perceptions of what people who go to prison are like, I thought, you know, I mean. And, you know, the media obviously does a certain job of, of portraying what people are in prison Are like, you know, you watch Shasha and Redemption and you think, my immediate thought, I'll tell you very candidly, I thought if I ever got sentenced to jail, I'd kill myself so I wouldn't have to go. And then, you know, I get to hear the story of somebody like Meg and then, you know, that leads me to you uh, because of the article you wrote on Medium and, and kind of what our perceptions of, of life uh, on the inside. I mean, you of all people probably have even a more interesting story, that, uh, a more powerful story or a more crazy story than Meg's was even because you were in a maximum security facility, which sounds nuts. Like when I imagine maximum security facilities, I think of movies like Con Air, things like Shawshank. And so I'm very curious, um, sort of kind of, you know, what are our misperceptions that are being shaped by the media and, and you know, for people who have not been in prison, you know, one of the things that Meg said to me, she said, "You'd be really surprised who's in there, and you'd be surprised. There's some really nice people in prison." Uh, you know, and so I'm very curious about this uh, from the perspective, especially given the nature of the work that you do.
1: Well, I could say a few things. One of them, you know, because you read my article, of one of the things in the, when I was writing about "Oranges and New Blacks" is that we're funny and mm-hmm. a lot of humor behind bars. Guys are very, very. funny. I mean. Prisoners are funny, darkly funny. I remember, you know, I was there for three days. And um, uh, the maximum security prison, this big, I mean, gigantic biker guy stands up, big muscle, big tattoos. He puts his fingers under his armpits, each, each you know, like, and he starts waving, wag, um, moving his arms like he's a bird in flight. And he's like, quack, quack, I'm a duck. I can't call games worth a fuck. He does that three times and he sits down, and I wonder, what the hell was that? And I, I said to the guy next to me, he says, those are called quack quacks. When guys bet here, they sometimes will bet for money, but sometimes they'll mostly bet for money or, you know, cigarettes, or whatever. But sometimes to embarrass somebody, if they lose, they will bet quack quacks in the chow home. That guy lost a bet last night. He bet a game and he lost. And so his his bet was that if he lost, he would have to do three quack quacks in the uh in the chow hall. And then, I, you know, for a couple of years, I was at that prison. Periodically, you would see, quack, quack, I'm a duck. I can't call games. worth the fuck? And that was same. We'd all same way to all chuckle and go back to eating. There was that kind of stuff there all the time. So the humor was a big thing. In fact, when I came out, my friends were like, Joe, write about how funny it is in here. I write about the humor. Um, so there's that. The other thing, too, is that most people think that falsely you are the crime you committed for the rest of your life. I guarantee you, Serena. if I got a video of you of the four or five minutes of the worst things you've done in your life, where you acted against your conscience, where you did things that, your worst regrets, and I played that to people and said this was you, 20 years later, 30 years later, you would say, hey, wait, wait a minute. You know, I call bullshit here, man. Those were... Those are like three or four minutes of the worst things of my life all put together. That does not compromise my identity. That's not who I am. And yes, I feel bad about them, but that's not who I am. The same thing with men who's a murderer. I had a friend who got drunk, cracked, smashed a bottle over somebody during a bar fight, killed the man. 20 years later, he's an AA. He's a changed man. He's leading all these groups. He's religious. He's a lovely human being. And he goes there and the victims and the DA don't let him out. He's a killer. He killed one person and it took exactly 10 seconds. That's not who he is the rest of his life. This is the big problem is that we hear somebody did something and we want to lock that in as our identity for the rest of their life. You wouldn't want that in your life. And yet we do this to people all the time. And you could see how patently unfair it would be. Even my father, I don't give him, I don't make him the man who broke my bones. If you read my book, I'm very generous with him. And to this day, when we had, I was there in LA two weeks ago having dim sum with him. Took a friend from Norway to have dim sum with my father. I love that man. I call him all the time, more regularly our conversations are, hey, dad, I just realized another thing that you gave me that's helping my daughter. Another way in which you were a good dad. Thanks. I didn't see it before. I see it now. Because my dad did a bunch of great things. He acted against his conscience a few times in very dramatic ways. Cinematic ways, as I say. But the majority of the time, my dad was a loving, generous guy when he wasn't demented with rage and out of control, which was less than the good. So in my head, I don't lock him in. The mistake I made growing up is I made him a monster. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at myself as being a monster because I did monstrous things because he did monstrous things. My dad was not a monster. He's a human being who acted against his conscience, and I made him into a monster for the rest of his life until I stopped. But he's not. That changed. Same thing with the guys in there. They're not locked into what the crime they committed. For the most part, most of them are not. And some of the crimes, the majority of the crimes that guys did in there should not even be considered crimes. The majority of the people are in there for drug crimes. You know, They were using drugs or they were used selling drugs. Mm-hmm. And most of those crime, those drug crimes, in my book, they don't belong in there. They belong in treatment. Or they belong somewhere out, but they don't belong in prison. Right. So there's that. The other thing is, of course, the kindnesses, because mm-hmm. there are people in there. They realize they're in there for the rest of their life. They want to live a life. You say, if I had to go in there, I would kill myself. The big secret is how much beautiful life exists with men who are never getting out. A sort of peace over time comes over them and they realize that's their home and they they have they have to give a shit about it Mm -hmm. they care they're mindful they try to like avoid problems they gather together the safest population in there the ones that do the best are the lifers Mm -hmm. (laughs) they counsel people that's their world now that's what they have to find meaning in and they find meaning there they counsel the youngsters. They lead the AA and the NA and they go to church and they they, 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 they raise money, to, you know, so that they could give to some cause of some kids dying of leukemia on the street. They raise money, guys who have little money on their books. You can donate money. They're the guys who do that kind of stuff, you know? It's crazy. They care about their lives. Their lives have meaning. They are not the guy they were when they were an angry 19-year-old drunk. They're now 39, 49. They're trying to live a good life. And so you find decencies in there all day long. You know, I go to my bed, my cell. It's my birthday. It's the night of my birthday. And there's a can of Dr. Pepper on my desk and a Snickers under my pillow. Like, who does that? Prisoners. (laughs) That's who does that. Decency, man, all day long in there, all day long.
2: Wow. Well, Joe, uh, you know, I mean, we've gotten probably well over an hour, but I I just I didn't want to stop you because this is is truly, truly been mind blowing. Uh, I'm I I really I can't thank you enough for for doing this. So I'm going to ask you my my final question. I mean, you're you're a writer and our show is called The Unmistakable Creative. And, you know, we've suddenly entered a world of noise in which everybody has a voice. And given, you know, your story and, and everything that you've been through. Uh the question I have for you is in a world that we live in uh, full of noise, how do you become unmistakable?
1: You call it unmistakable. I call it unimpeachable, which means it has to be authentic. See, I walk into any room and there are some things about me that are unimpeachable. You can say whatever the hell you want and, You cannot you cannot touch my narrative because I've lived it, I've done it, I demonstrate it, I live and breathe it. And the thing that you need to do as an unmistakable creative is you have to be you have to be driven to live an unimpeachable life, to do something that's unimpeachable. It is so clear. Once you've done it and nobody can touch it, people, I mean, people can say all they want they get sling stuff, but then you end up being Gulliver and they end up being Lilliputians and you are totally uninfected by their little arrows hitting your ankles. You can give a shit. And the rest of the world will know that they're Lilliputians slinging little, you know, bullshit arrows at your ankles. That to me is you have to find out, what it is about you that makes you your most unimpeachable self. And you have to be fine with it because your unimpeachable self means you're going to have to be also find your frailties and your vulnerabilities and live within them too. And, 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 and that investigation and that willing to put yourself out there um, is a big thing. There's a lot of people who want to put themselves out there all day long. YouTube is full of those people. We get it. But they're unimpeachable all day long because they don't know who they are. They're performing. They're doing something. That, what I'm talking about is something so, you've heard me use the other word, elemental. Something so, and I'm not sure, you know, I'm not li- like literally believe element the, that were ele- these things are elemental. But in a lyrical way, you have to get to a place that is so almost fundamental, as, as fundamental to you as you can be. That nobody can take them, that nobody can say anything about. It, that nobody can say you're being false. And it will come through. I guarantee. When you are you, and you get in front of people, they're going to know that they've been in front of uh, uh, some dynamism that they don't generally bump into in the world. And um, you know, I found I found myself, and I got fine with myself, and I move in the world like that with a confidence. You know, it it took it took it took um, it took you know many years. And it took a lot of tears, and it took a lot of wanting to give up. But I'm here now. And, you know, we're in an advantage because the great thing is there's this new medium, the Internet, in which you can do a lot. We don't even know what we can do. It's not even all the way known. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of ways in which we're seeing. But, you know, we're we're doing things. I'm doing things. I'm looking at it, and I'm paying attention to it. But it's available to us there. There's people who are, who are really looking for something that's true. There's a lot of falseness out there, but there's a lot of people who are more interested in what is true. And if you are unmistakable and unimpeachable, people will come and find you because it's a big world out there. You know, one of the great beauties of my story is when the documentary protagonist, which was which was made by Academy Award winner, um, documentarian, um, jessica you when that gets people see it on netflix i get contacted from all over the world when they see the even the cheesier, you know you know uh our episode from i almost got away with it uh, investigation discovery when they see that on netflix or they see that on tv in south africa or kenya or jerusalem or ireland or tokyo they want to reach out to me too (laughs) my story there's people out there they want to know they're they're they see, they know. And uh, the great wide web, web, man, the wide web is opening up they all all these options and opportunities for us to to be unimpeachable and get recognized. And I'm excited about that. I love that. And story, it's all about it's all about we can play with story now in ways we've never been able to play before. It's so much fun. We really can innovate with our story so much more now. Awesome. So that's what I think. That makes sense.
2: It's, that makes all the sense in the world. Joe, um, really, I, I can't thank you enough for for being here and taking some time to share some of your story and your insights with our listeners uh, at Unmistakable Creative. You know, I, I, I'd said at a certain point this year, I have uh, gotten to a point with my ability to do this where I have an intuition for things that are going to be a really, really big hit. I think uh, you're going to hear a lot from our audience. Uh, this is uh, boringly. <laughs> okay,
1: cool. my friend. Hey, listen, this was wonderful. You, I love your style. I've never been interviewed where people didn't have like, questions coming in. I love that intuition. Stick with this. It works. I like that. Awesome. It's been wonderful being interviewed by you, Srini. Thank you. Yeah, Thank it's you so much day, for taking right? the time
2: to join us. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,